The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Chris Smith. He is a gifted garden writer, seed saver, and homesteading consultant who serves on the board of Slow Food Asheville. He is also the author of a terrific book titled, The Whole Okra, A Seed-to-Stem Celebration. I heard Mr. Smith speak at the Georgia Organics Meeting in Athens, Georgia, where he mesmerized his audience, a full audience, I might add, all about the history and great tastes of okra. So we will be diving into that. But I also want to mention that Mr. Smith is the executive director and founder of the Utopian Seed Project, and I think this is a truly important organization because of the passion that surrounds this project about sustainable food systems, heritage seed saving, and really surviving the challenging times that we're facing. So welcome, Mr. Smith. I'm delighted to have you with me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, your talk in Athens, Georgia was absolutely, I think you could hear a pin drop. People were so engaged about a little tiny topic of okra that turned out to be a huge subject. So let me just ask you, you are a writer by training. How did you become interested in okra? That is a good question. I like to say that okra found me more than I found okra. Growing up in England, I certainly didn't grow up with it as a vegetable that I had even heard of, let alone enjoyed eating. It's just a little bit too cool to be growing it in England. But I ended up marrying an American woman from South Carolina, and obviously okra is a crop that is uh, loved and grown in the South. And so when I moved to this side of the world, then I stumbled across okra pretty early on in my life over here. Well, actually, the story is a little more interesting than that. (laughs) I can dig a bit deeper if you want. You were at a bridal shower that your wife had been given by some friends. And one of her friends, I linked to this one person who really changed your life in that she gave your wife a gift of a box of Indian spices and one okra pod that had some history attached to it. And you felt compelled that you needed to plant those seeds. Yeah, that's one of the things with seeds is is they're kind of, they're more than just a gift, they're kind of a responsibility, right? So they carry a lot of history in their genetics and they have the possibility to really do so much going forward that if somebody gifts you a seed, then you're almost obligated to do something with it. And as a gardener and, and having seed saving in my family, then obviously I was going to take this seed and grow it. And that really started a whole new journey with uh, appreciating okra. When you grow your own food, then you interact with it on a level that's so much different if you just buy it from a supermarket. I agree. And I also have felt similar feelings about when I've been gifted with seeds. They take on a tremendous importance. I've been given seeds by a friend who has grown squash, for example, in Minnesota. And when she gave a select group of friends those seeds, it was more than 
if I had gone into the hardware store and picked up a package of seeds or even ordering it through a catalog, receiving them from someone, as you say, invokes a certain level of responsibility. So I think it's important that we take a step back and reconsider what those seeds mean. Totally agree. And also take that lesson and give people seeds, right? If you give the gift of seeds, then you're putting that obligation and responsibility on other people and forcing them to reconsider and connect with their food systems in ways they may not have considered before. So we can use that experience that we've had ourselves to convert way more people just by giving seeds. It's such a wonderful thing to give away. It really is. It's quite powerful. Now, in your book and in the review of your book, there's information. And part of that is that in 2018, you grew 76 varieties of okra. And then in 2019, you grew another 76 varieties of okra. Where do you get all of those seeds? That's a good question. First of all, I fell short of the 2019 76 variety mark. I had that many varieties in my collection, but we only ended up planting about 50 varieties. So <laughs> Still? Um, so this year, I'm going to plant the rest of them. So I, I will get there eventually, but not quite yet. But in, in terms of those varieties, I was really lucky to be connected to a fair few seed companies. I, up until very recently, worked for a small seed company in Asheville called So True Seed, and they had some pretty good varieties. And then through that work, I Seed Savers Exchange, Baker's Creek, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, all these wonderful small seed companies sent me their entire collections. So that was a pretty good starting point. But then after that, so many seed swaps happening these days that you find really awesome old-timey varieties. As word started getting out and I started talking more about okra, I would get wonderful packages in the mail from people saying, oh, this is a seed that I found here or got from here or was part of my family heritage. And so it started with that one gift of seed coming to me and feeling the responsibility of that one variety. But now, now I've received a lot of different varieties and Actually, that just keeps happening. Just this last week, I was out of town and I've come back and I've already got packages in the mail from people <laughs> that said they'll share their okra seeds with me. So it just keeps growing, really. This is fantastic. Well, I have to tell you, I was thinking on my way up to the radio station today about your presentation in Athens, Georgia. Georgia Organics is such a fantastic organization. I think your session was probably ranked the highest in terms of enthusiastic audience attendees, but the only thing missing, the only thing that would have made it better, in addition to all of the samples of dried seeds, et cetera, that you shared, would have been to have an okra banquet. And especially in going through your book, right, I'm looking at, oh my gosh, look at all the cultures that have celebrated okra. So you've got African dishes and you've got Indian dishes, many of which you tasted growing up in England, right? Yeah, that's the one time, without really knowing it, I must have eaten an Indian okra dish, a bindi dish. Yeah. I, I don't have a memory of it. Right. But it's so ubiquitous globally. And I think that you would agree. I've come to the conclusion from your book that we need to have a resurgence of okra. That leads me, of course, to the big issue, which is the slime factor. And if you ask a group of people, what is it about okra that first comes to mind when I mention that vegetable? They'll say slime. And yet you presented ways to get away from that slime factor. Let's talk about it. What creates the slime? Good question. And I would like to say, while we're talking about it, that slime avoidance is definitely one route we can go down. But I 
also encourage people to embrace the slam. So that's, that's a different conversation, which we may not, may not get to, but it's, it's an important one to consider as well. But yeah. in terms of avoiding it, then basically that slime is contained within the cells of the okra pod itself and actually throughout the plant. And when you break those cells by crushing or cutting the okra, then that's what releases the slime. So actually one of the easiest ways to avoid the slime is just don't cut it. And as long as you're not somebody that's going to masticate on your okra pod for 30 seconds, in which case you'll get a very slimy mouth, if you're just going to bite it and chew it and swallow it, then you'll probably not experience the slime too much at all. So that means any preparation that uses the pods in their whole form is going to be a less slimy preparation than something where you cut the slime. Okay. That could be pickled okra, often that's whole. Mm -hmm. You can ferment the okra pods whole. And there's a whole bunch of different dishes where they ask you to harvest the pods really short and you can use them without having to slice them as well. That's, mm. that's probably the easiest way. Just don't cut it. That's interesting. Well, the slime does have some medicinal benefits. You discuss those in your presentation. They're also outlined in your book. So let's do touch on embracing the slime. Personally, it's going to take me a little while to get there just because of the kind of other sensory feelings we've had with slime. For example, if you've picked up a slug in the garden or you people think of snot, for example, it has that same kind of consistency. So embracing the slime might be a bit of a stretch for some of our listeners. Why do you want people to do that? Well, one strong argument for embracing the slime is that we know that okra originated and was domesticated in East Africa and then was brought across the Americas with the slave trade. Mm -hmm. And so I always like to go back to what are those original culinary traditions that support this crop that we now think of as a southern crop, but truly came from a whole different continent. And when you look at uh, Jessica Harris has a book called The African Cookbook. And in there, she has a number of okra recipes. And she talks about how some of the local traditions in some of these African countries are to totally mince the pod into, I think, to quote exactly almost, it's a gluey mass. And so you, if you just were to take a single okra pod and just keep dicing and dicing and dicing it, then you'll get this almost like the kid slime that you can buy that's really cool these days, and you'll end up with that with okra. And I know that doesn't sound very appealing right now in this description, but if you were to like mix some scallions and some fresh corn and some grated carrot into that and start making a vegetable patty, then that okra, that gluey mass will bind the entire vegetable product all together. So no eggs and no cornstarch. It's just all bound together with that, effectively the slime of the okra. And then if you just fry that like a fritter, then you get this just really fresh, rich vegetable dish that's all bound just by the slime. And so that's when the slime becomes a culinary tool instead of a culinary aversion. And you can really use that. We see the same with gumbo. Gumbo, the okra is celebrated for its sticking power, where it really thickens up the soup into right. what we know as gumbo. And so that's all a property of the slime, where we enjoy it instead of avoid it. Right. And I think that from a nutritionist perspective, I believe that there are properties in that slime that can help reduce cholesterol levels. One of the types of fibers that can lower cholesterol is considered to be beneficial for helping heart health, for example. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a lot of different studies out there that are beginning to dig into that. One of the ones that I thought was fairly informative, we actually pay quite a lot of money for some of these slime producing plants. Like you can buy aloe drinks 
or right. you can buy chia seeds and flaxseed and make chia seed pudding, which is effectively just a process of releasing the mucilage from these plants. And we're taking them because they have this really good gut cleansing, colon cleansing properties. And okra has all that. And it's, it's the same type of complex polysaccharides that form this slime that can really help us in a digestive sense. Yeah. And you also mentioned that there was at least one study that showed its protective value in helping to reduce breast cancer risk. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing when you start looking into that. And I, you know, I'm not a doctor. I read a lot of research articles around this and, and, and referenced the original articles in the book. But I was pretty blown away by the diverse usages that that slime had been applied to. So definitely a good thing to do is, and, and this, is, this is where I lose people pretty quickly, but my wife and I have started taking okra pods and slicing them up and putting them in a glass of water and just leaving them for a few days. No, I'm sorry, a few hours. Days would be pretty intense. And then you strain off those okra pods and you're left with water that's kind of like thick water. And it really is like that aloe water that you buy where it's kind of got like body and personality to the water. And all it is is just like the, the pod that has been soaked in the water. And so we should all be consuming more liquids and we know we don't drink enough water. And so that can just be something you do the night before, leave it overnight. And in the morning, you've got this like thick water that actually tastes pretty good to me. Huh. And then I just go ahead and drink that as like just a morning wake up call to kind of just have some goodness going into my body before I start drinking my coffee. Interesting. Well, you and your wife and your daughter have also used this quote unquote slime to use as a facial mask. Yeah, I guess we should warn people that I sometimes go off in some tangents in the book where we go deep down the okra rabbit hole. And I always promise people that they'll learn something that they didn't know about okra and probably something that they didn't want to know about okra. But that's, that's not always a bad thing. Well, I and think so this, that's, that's what made your presentation so delightful, actually, is that you were able oh, to good. show your underbelly and your, your true, genuine character about you were curious about okra and you shared all of these treasures. And you're, the reason why I really love your book is not only do you have terrific recipes in here to get people started enjoying okra, but you also have the history of okra. And we are going to dive into that in just a moment, but we are halfway. So I want to just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Chris Smith. He is a gifted garden writer. He is a seed saver, a homesteading consultant, and he is the author of a terrific book titled The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration. So let's just touch on the history part. I thought it was interesting that in Thomas Jefferson's garden in, in Monticello, he planted okra around his square of tomatoes. And I wonder what the purpose of that was. Was it the fact that okra is kind of spiny and maybe kept deer away from his tomatoes? Or was it some sort of relationship underground where okra and tomatoes were a good symbiotic planting? It's a good question. I don't have a definitive answer. Uh, one thing I can definitely say is that it probably wasn't for the deer because I've seen many places where deer have decimated okra, even mm. though it's spiny. Those spines do protect from some pests, but they tend to be the smaller insect pests rather than the bigger eating pests like deer. Um, my guess is that they were planted together because of the proximity of the season rather than anything else. The underground relationship 
I've not found any evidence to support that, but we do know that okra's got a very aggressive root system and so is more likely to outcompete the needs of the tomato than support it. So I, I would think it's they're both, you know, heat-loving plants. They both grow through the season. He may have had a culinary thing in mind because we see all over the world, whenever we find okra, we always find an okra and tomato dish to go along with it. Like every single country I've come across that uses okra also has an okra tomato dish. So that's a link in the seasonality, but it's also kind of going back to the earlier question of how do we mitigate the slime? And right. one of those tools is the acidity that we can add to an okra dish will kind of cut through the slime and tomatoes are naturally acidic. And so the tomatoes will make the okra dish less slimy. So that would be some of my guesses, but I, I honestly don't know. Well, you know, that's fascinating. I'm really glad you brought that up about the acid because I was going to mention it too for people who are wanting to dive into okra a little bit. Maybe I'm going to plant some in my garden for sure, because I think the flowers this plant is related to hibiscus, and the flowers resemble those beautiful blossoms. They just last for one day, though, which is unfortunate. But I think that if we start out with an okra dish where there is some acid, as you mentioned, either tomatoes or maybe some vinegar or some lemon juice, we can maybe get over that hump a little bit if we do have some aversion to slime. Well, if we're going to go there, then let me explain the number one anecdotal information I got from traveling all over the place asking people about okra in terms of the dish that converts the most people from being okra haters to okra lovers is by far and away roasted okra. It's fantastic because it's also probably the simplest thing to do in the world. You just, you get your okra, you slice it in half lengthwise, you add a little bit of oil, a little bit of salt. You can add any other seasonings you want. You can make them hot with chili powder or you can make them savory with rosemary and oregano, whatever you want to do. But salt and oil at a minimum, mix that as if you're doing any other type of roasted vegetable. Throw it in a roasting pan in your oven, 30 minutes around about 400 Fahrenheit-ish, nice and hot, and just cook them until they just start browning a little bit. They go a little bit crispy. And my two young daughters, they disappear off the table. We, because it's so quick to prepare and we grow a lot of okra, then we just are able to do that dish multiple times a week. And yeah, everybody has some sort of similar preparation when they're converting people to okra lovers. And they say, yeah, you can grill it, you can roast it, whatever it is, but like just some level of light charring. And then with the acid, you can get a lime and just squeeze a little bit of lime juice on top if you want a bit of extra pizzazz. And then if you want to go all the way and impress some dinner guests, then you can make like a a pesto mayonnaise aioli type thing for a dip. And it's just, it's incredible and delicious and simple and will get people eating more okra. Well, I couldn't agree more. I have not had it that way, but just the recipe and picture in your book led my mouth to water. So I totally agree. But what about the slime? Does roasting also eliminate that slime factor? Yeah, so we've talked no cutting will help and acid will help, but high heat preparations will also help reduce the slime factor. So when we boil okra, we don't really get much above 100 degrees Celsius, so it doesn't get too hot, which is why we get that thickening effect from the gumbos and stuff. But when we put it in the oven at like 400, 425 Fahrenheit, something like that, then that's hot enough that it kind of cuts through the slime. And that's one of the reasons that people love fried okra. If you get a good fried okra, not not a bad fried okra, then um, 
often that high, if it's nice and fresh, that high heat oil will leave it less slimy. Well, so yeah, high heat can definitely help. That leads me to your first exposure to okra, which was when you were first visiting the United States and you were visiting a friend and he took you to a greasy spoon restaurant. You had fried okra of the worst kind. So if people have had a bad experience with this, like you go into a restaurant that maybe isn't changing their oil frequently or it comes to the table as you experience drenched in oil, don't let that disturb you. Go forth and do this roasting preparation that you recommend. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's so worth acknowledging because I suppose the difference is you can have, there's some vegetables out there that if you have them prepared badly, then, you know, they're still okay to eat. You're not going to be like totally put off them. But when you get okra done badly, it's really bad. And it's not that it's hard to cook. It's just that you can get it wrong. So yeah, don't judge it on its first experience. If, if I had judged it on my first experience and never eaten it again, then I wouldn't have experienced all the wonders that I discovered on the on the research for this book. Exactly. And I do want to just add that your book is absolutely the ticket to go from a hate to a love relationship because you you describe in the book that people either love or hate okra and I really do believe that just the way you you have a reverence for okra and it comes through the pages in in such a beautiful way and it helps us appreciate a food that could be really helpful to us as we face some very uncertain times especially with climate change so let's talk about okra's role now as a way to celebrate a crop that might be important to us as we have these challenges with non-dependable growing conditions. Yeah, it's it's a pretty huge and, and scary topic, but we're definitely already seeing the effects of climate change on our food systems and, and maybe exposing the fragility of some of our food systems. So if we start looking for crops that are suited to the regions where we are growing and crops that are able to provide like multifunctionality. And by that, I mean, we're not just growing for one primary crop that gets us a high dollar value at market, but we can grow this as a sustenance crop where we can eat the okra pods as a dish, but then we can also harvest some leaves and we can harvest the seeds and we can have multiple culinary options from a single plant. Then we start getting into a system where on less use of land with less externalized inputs like fertilizers and the like, we can produce an abundance of food that is healthy for our bodies and healthy for the land. So that's kind of where I see okra being able to step into a lot of food systems and really produce a lot of food. Right. Now, you mentioned that there is okra growing in Massachusetts where we know we can have cool nights well into the summer growing season, you mentioned that okra doesn't like temperatures at night that dip below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Do you have any recommendations for those of us who are enthused now about this crop and want to give it a go? When Definitely, yeah. yeah. So what, what we hear about okra is that it, it can only be grown in the South. And I think in some ways, as, as food producers and farmers, then we're, we're really quite intelligent people. In, in some ways, I think we're entirely stupid, but in, in some ways, we're really clever. And one way we see that is with things like a season extension. And the fact that we can grow tomatoes and sweet potatoes all the way up north 
is proof to me that we can grow okra all the way up north. We just haven't really worked with it as a crop to make it, one, regionally adaptable to cooler conditions, and two, applying some of these techniques, like uh, people will pre-warm the soil with black plastic, or they'll start the okra inside. We all start tomato plants inside before it's warm enough to plant them outside. Traditionally, we don't do that with okra, but there's nothing stopping us starting okra as a transplant inside to give it this jump on the season to then plant it outside to give it long enough to grow. Now, there might be a little bit of like learning pain here as people try and grow it further and further north, but definitely I've heard reports of people growing it in Massachusetts and actually even further north into Canada, actually Nova Scotia. Somebody told me that they had successfully grown okra but I didn't get to communicate with that person directly, so I, I don't have much more information. But certainly some, some pretty good seed selection for cold hardier varieties would be a good starting place. Right. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I would be remiss if I did not touch on your utopian seed project. I think this is critically important now, especially, as we mentioned earlier, with climate change challenges. What would you like our listeners to know about this project? Well, I guess the short of it is that it's it's a project that's really kind of taking this idea of all this stuff we talked about with okra, but looking at us in place, we're in Western North Carolina, so we're focused on the Southeast, and we're really trying to support diversity in food and farming in this region. So we, we really want food to be delicious, and we want to elevate the food system to be something wonderful that we all just get excited about food because we should. And then we're recognizing that farmers need support in exploring and doing trials to really identify which crops are best and what new crops can we grow here. So this would be like if there was a project like this in Massachusetts, they could be exploring cold hardy okras. We're exploring other things down here in the south and really just using those two angles, the, the food side and the supply side to explore what could be wondrous about the food system. So it's, it's called the Utopian Sea Project. So we have this visionary dream of this food utopia, but we also have the seed project where we're very much grounded in the soil and doing the work to provide the information and the excitement around the food that we can and should be growing. Exactly. And I always get concerned when I see seeds being patented or where I see that seed companies, small seed companies are bought out by larger ones. Because what I've witnessed when that happens with any consolidation is we lose biodiversity. And with biodiversity, I think we have a more resilient agriculture. And we as eaters then also have a greater exposure to more health promoting nutrients. Yeah, yeah. There's the, there's the health for us and also the health for the, the planet, right? Because as we're seeing these changing climatic conditions, then we're, we're going to need this broad biodiversity to be able to be resilient to all these changes that we're facing. And so if we're, if we're going down a route of monoculture and reduced genetic diversity, then that's where the fragility comes from. So okay. The Utopian Sea Project is kind of trying to run in the opposite direction and saying, hey, no, we, we can really celebrate and grow a whole bunch of different things. And they, they have value and worth and, and can really support good food and, and good farming. Well, I want to thank you so much, Chris, for being my guest. I want to make sure our, our listeners know to go to utopianseed.org to find out more about that. The book we've been talking about and celebrating, really, is titled The Whole Okra, 
a Seed to STEM celebration. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my entertaining guest, Mr. Chris Smith, a gifted garden writer, seed saver, and homesteading consultant who has produced truly a fantastic book for any gardener to enjoy. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 